Ready? Hi, this is Paul Weller, and you're listening to Chris T's Aerial View. Live! End time. Talk radio. Friday! 6 p.m. Eastern time. Call 760 You have a podcast? Oh, yeah, I invented them. That bit's not my message. It's a fabulous disaster. He's a symbol. Metaphor. He embodies the dementia of a nihilistic generation. He's a star. Let him have it, Chris. Let him have it, Chris. For everything. You're listening to Aerial Food worldwide on the internet. No tricks like this. This is hot low radio. It's good. Plenty of room for man. It's got, it's got lots of juice. It's got the... Great heavens! What kind of radio? Really put the hook in me. I have broadcast many, many jobs on both the light program and the buffalo. Late at night, man, you get it. Jersey, I don't care who you are. First, let's talk. I'm sick of talking. Shut up! Shut up! It's okay. You speak English, son. Jesus told me so. Harlow's dead English. Chris, stand up and wiggle your hands for us. I know that guy. But we're young. Yeah, he's a nihilist. And I'll smash your face Conversation is a two-way street. I don't get you. I don't think you do either. I think you're stupid. I heard it over the radio. I'm not just talking about one person. I'm talking about everybody. I'm talking about content. I'm talking about God, hell. Do you understand? And you will not take me off the air for now or for any other spaceless time. Whatever I please. I'm a famous radio personality now. I couldn't agree with you more. He's always talking about some radio star that I never heard of. You don't like my stories? You have to listen to my program. Listen to the radio. Find out what's going on. Listen to the talk shows and you will find out what's going on. Oh, man. Radio? Yes, talk radio. It's so boring, man. Okay, okay. Hard to suicide. Mm-hmm. I have an idea now. First name, Mr. Last name. I just hope this man realizes that being able to communicate with people all over the world carries a serious responsibility. Show the man your power, baby. Blast him! Give him some of that tone! Oh, man. You radio, you Showtime! You radio, you You radio, you I want you to smile. Won't be kids for this one. Good evening. Ladies and gentlemen of the radio audience. Very auspicious beginning. Why are they doing this? They said when you got here, the whole thing started. What are you? I think you're the cause of all this. Eva!
I know how to talk to people. I sure do. I've been talking to people a long, long time. 1989, this show first uh, went on. And it was always a one-hour talk show. Which I think is just about perfect. One hour. Don't wear out your welcome. That's what I say. (laughs) Hopefully, I haven't worn it out yet. It's me, Chris T., here on the Hound NYC... where you can hear new hound howls every Sunday, 3 p.m. By the way, this Sunday, spring ahead, so now I can say Eastern Daylight Time. And then followed, of course, at 5 p.m. by Crash and the Party, the doo-wop chop shop of the year with uh, Mark and Miriam. You got those doo-wops on vinyl. They sure do. It, it is uh, just about a year. God, I feel like singing Lodi so bad. Just about a year ago, I set out on the road. Just about a year ago, the shit hit the fan. Hit it hard. Splattered all over the place. Disgusting mess. That's when... We all started working for the clamp down. And the little bit of uh, a living that I had cobbled together from various gigs, because we all live in the gig economy now, they all went away. No more work for you. And so I decided in the midst of a pandemic to open up a retail business, a bricks-and-mortar store. And I took out a bunch of money from my retirement account. I said, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do now. I'm going to sell old shit to people. And the store has been closed now for a while. going to have to... Uh, get it back going again, and I'll have news down the road when I do. But ever since uh, January 20th, when I went in for some foot surgery, I've mostly been sitting in front of the computer, doing computer stuff that I can do for the, sh- for the store, for this show. One of the things I've been doing is going down the memory hole. Because I have this project in mind where I'm going to take a bunch of uh, audio and make it available online. And then I'm going to ask you to cough up some money to uh, defray the costs of doing all that. I, I, don't, I, don't, I, I don't expect to make any money from this. I've never asked for any money for this show, for Aerial View, or for the newsletter that goes along with it called See You Next Tuesday. And if you want the newsletter, go to facebook.com slash call Aerial View and message me. And I'll sign you up. Message me with your email address. Or find me on Instagram, where I am Chris Sackis. T-S-A-K-I-S. But one of the pieces of audio I found uh, features none other than my guest tonight, Jack Rabbit, who I must have met when I was 18 or 19. He's going to join us in a few minutes. And uh, the other person in this audio is Tim Sommer, who uh, we used to like to sing a song to him that went something like this. Here comes Tim Sommer. It wasn't terribly original or funny, and it mostly led to eye rolls, but it made me enormously happy. I, I don't know why. It just did. To be able to do that. Here comes Tim Sommer. Now, I haven't talked to Tim in a long time, and frankly, Tim on Facebook is beginning to piss me off because he's doing this thing that a lot of people are doing now when it comes to music and making these absolutist type of statements. And the latest one was that he's he's able to definitively say that the Ronnie James Dio Black Sabbath is better than the Ozzy Osbourne Black Sabbath. And I, my response, you couldn't print it in a family publication. 
This is not a family publication or a family show. I said, get the fuck out of here with that shit. What is this definitive nonsense? Who made you the... Def By the way, I know Tim was just trolling. That's one of his things. That's one of his shticks he does. But when I met Tim Sommer back in the day, is because of a, a show he did on WMYU called Noise the Show. And this audio is from that program. And uh, now's the time we should uh, bring Jack in to say hello to everybody. Jack has been standing by, waiting patiently, and uh, he's going to join us just as soon as he can. And all I have to do is say the magic words, UNMUTE! Just like that, he will be there. UNMUTE! Maybe. Maybe, Maybe. I'll be there. What's the matter? Are you going to leave me high and dry now? After that <laughs> intro? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. After that intro, leave me high and dry? I don't believe it. Hey, welcome to the program, Jack. Thanks for having me, Chris. It's always ha happy just to talk to you anyway. What What's so happy about that? Please tell me, what's so happy about talking to me? Talking to smart, intelligent, dead funny people is never boring to me. Oh, look at you. Thanks. With the, with the compliments. Well, life is short, man. <laughs> life is short, that's true. Um... Nobody knew it better than the nihilistics. <laughs> our songs were short. Our hair was short. Life was short. The whole damn thing was short. Uh, that's how we met. That's how Jack and I met. We met because of the band that I was in, the NYHC band called the nihilistics. And the nihilistics, uh, other people out there are claiming to be founding members of that band. I am actually the founding member of that band. I was the one who played guitar, and I was the one who uh, talked Mike into picking up a bass, and I was the one who showed Mike how to play the bass. And Mike and I were the ones down in my mother's basement doing songs like Grandma's Are Made for Kicking and recording into a Panasonic tape recorder, the sh standard shoebox Panasonic tape recorder that I hung from my mother's basement ceiling. And we stood around it, and we sang into it. I don't know where those cassettes are now. I would love to have them. Uh, but it was the two of us for the longest while, unable to find a singer, unable to find a drummer. And then, lo and behold, uh, we ran into Ron at a club called Legs out on uh, Long Island, Valley Stream, which was, uh, I think it was a mafia front, Jack, now that I think about it. I think it might have been a mafia front. Sure felt like it the one time I was there. <laughs> I think it was just like in Goodfellas where the the guy who owned the restaurant, because it was so obviously an old diner or restaurant, and the guy probably couldn't make the VIG. He couldn't pay the loan anymore. And somebody got the bright idea that they'd take it over and turn it into a nightclub. And it was a place where we would go on Saturday nights to feel less alone. And oddly enough, I would always leave there feeling much more alone somehow. <laughs> I'm jumping around as I tell this story, but let me go back to Tim Summer and noise the show and ask Jack. Uh, by the way, let me introduce Jack properly. Jack Rabbit, who has put out the Big Takeover magazine zine, if you want, for 41 years in May, is a lifelong music fan, somebody whose depth of knowledge of uh, music I don't think could be surpassed by just about anybody you know. His life is listening to music, creating music. He was in the band even worse on the New York thrash cassette. And what were the other bands that you uh, did after even worse? The best known one I was in was Springhouse. We Springhouse. were on Caroline Records in the early 90s. That's right. And uh, still exists because we did a tour with the Chills two years ago and co-headlined uh, the Kalamazoo Gazer 12 Festival in Michigan three years ago. So every now and then we come back and play. And uh, uh, in the aughts, in the late 90s, I was in a band called Last Burning Embers. And in the 80s, I did a tour with Leaving Trains. So I guess those four bands. So not only creating music, but, you know, uh, writing about music, uh, listening to music, advocating for music. Have you ever run your own record label, by the way? Briefly, though, I proved a dismal failure at it. So <laughs> It's got to be a hard thing to do. Well, I mean, I put out good records, but uh, and we spent some money marketing them, but it was hard to get money back even when they sold. 
which is the un, unforgiving secret of the indie rock biz. Is that no one pays you? Or if they do, they take out so many, you know, deductions that it becomes impossible to press your next record. So when you're starting out, you'd better do it at a pretty steep loss. Hmm. And nowadays, bands can't even sell records because they can't have shows. So the records, yeah. the merch table, is, there's no... Is there a virtual merch table? Maybe that's what's needed is a virtual merch table. Well, yeah, people have their, you know, band camp sites. Mm-hmm. And people order from them quite a lot, especially on Bandcamp Fridays where they get all of it. So, yeah, there is a virtual merch, but it's obviously a, le a lot less of a, um impulse purchase than if you see a band and pass their table on the way out the door, you know, like, hey, I, I know. want some of the A few years ago, I saw the Blasters play in New Jersey with, um, you know, Phil Alvin singing. And, I mean... I digress, but he looked like death warmed over. I hope he's okay. I swear to God, I hope he's, he's okay. Man. <laughs> but I bought everything they had at the merch table on the way out. I was buying CDs. I was buying T-shirts. I wanted to support the band. Here, here's huh. some money for the band, right? That's right. what you do. If you want to see them again another day, you just help that along. There you go. Uh, Jack Rabbit is with us. I, I was giving out your bona fides, but uh, the big takeover is probably... Uh, the longest running thing you've done. I mean, 41 years. How, how, how do you account for the longevity of that? I just never stopped. Well, there you and go. Readers and advertisers never fired me, which is the other way it would work. I mean, I'm still having fun. So it's like a band that never stops. If you're still enjoying it, you might as well keep doing it. Do you consider it mostly a solitary pursuit? I mean, you must collaborate with other people. You have people writing articles that end up in there. But is, I, I mean, it's your baby. Is it not? Uh, it's one of those paradoxes where it is and it isn't. And it is a solitary pursuit. It's quite a communal pursuit because because all those people write. You know, we have like 30 people who write just about every issue and they contribute a few reviews or an article or something. Yeah. Are you so able to do pay? the copy editing and there's someone who does transcriptions and mm -hmm. Jim Santo does the website and, um, you know, uh, Tim Brown, my old friend from the punk rock days, does the, the social media. You know, everybody pitches in. So it's kind of that, that model of endless volunteerism. There you go. And me uh, who, who works 60-hour work weeks. Uh, and you can go to BigTakeOver.com if you want to sign up, if you want to subscribe and get physical copies of the magazine. I was talking to Jack yesterday, and you were going on about why you actually prefer to put out a printed product. Yeah, I just like them better. I find I do read quite a, a lot of stuff on the net like everyone else does, but I find it a lot more ephemeral. I read it once and never read it a second time, whereas I'm still thumbing through old issues of Slash Magazine or Search and Destroy or Trouser Press or even like old Melody Makers or Enemies that I have. And it's, it's like a history snapshot. It's just brilliant to read that stuff again. Oh, God, I wish I still had my creams and circuses. That's for damn sure. Yeah, and if you did, you would probably spend several delighted hours reliving you know bits of history or learning stuff you didn't remember or didn't know in the first place i want to go I back in time and slap myself because i got a lot out of those mags i want to go back in time and slap myself because the things i threw out versus the things i kept uh yeah. make no sense now in retrospect a lot of my readers tell me their parents threw out, threw out stuff you know, because they went off to college or whatever, got a home and didn't realize they'd left a bunch of stuff at their parents' house and they'd cry about it. Yeah. Well, that's how all my toys... That's how, that's how all my toys disappeared because my mother decided at some point to clean everything out. And I don't I think... She didn't... Junk. <laughs> I'm tired. I'm tired of this. A piece. <laughs> like all my, all my G.I. Joes and the slot card tracks and the models and god knows why it all went it all went but that's not what we're here to discuss uh jack rabbit is my guest and again bigtakeover.com is where you can go to find out about not only the magazine but the show that you've been doing how long is uh, has the show been running now the big takeover show um the one that i'm working on now for monday will be the 321st show in as many weeks so you know got six or seven years and before that i was on for eight years on a station that used to pay me yeah. Uh, and how would you describe the big takeover show for those who haven't heard it? Um, it's a mixture of usually about 15 songs that have been recorded fairly recently 
with 15 or so songs that were recorded a long, long time ago, sometimes just a couple of years or like five years or 10 years, but quite a, quite a few that are even like 50 or 60, 70, 80 years old. I play a nice little variety just because that's kind of my taste in music and always has been. I got to say, I was listening on the desktop computer today while I was going down the memory hole, and uh, the sound quality is also really excellent. I'm, a lot of streaming stuff you listen to sounds pretty cruddy, but uh, whatever they're doing over there, the folks who host your show, they make it sound pretty damn good. So uh, uh, Completely deserve shout out to Tommy at RealPunkRadio.com. He's a great guy besides doing a great job. Yeah. yeah Total cool. rock and roll lover and, and swell fella. So, you know, it's all his credit and none of mine. Kudos to him. And uh, Jack also has a Patreon page where you can support all this stuff. It's not, uh, it's it's basically just paying for itself is what it's doing. So you can go to patreon.com slash jackrabbit. How long have you been Jack Rabbit, by the way? Because I met you, when I met you, you were Jack Rabbit. 1978, Chris. Why the name change? That's not your family name, I'm guessing. No, it's not. My real last name is Karate, mm-hmm. and that is, in fact, the name that my son and daughter have. Okay. So I told them they can be Jim Rabbit and Caroline Rabbit anytime they like, same as same as I took it. You know, there's no impediment. Yeah. But uh, in 1978, and they, and they my I get into this punk rock stuff that we were all sort of embarking on, and, you know, Johnny Rotten wasn't his real name, and Captain Sensible wasn't his real name, and, heck, Brian James wasn't even his real name. So I went looking for a punk rock name, and for a week I was Jack Fanatic. I don't like that, Jack Fanatic. That wasn't bad. Well, eh, Jack Fanatic. All but right. it wasn't good enough, and yeah. you know, it was only a week. And so I, I got out a dictionary, and I looked up Jack, and there was like Jack O'Lantern and Jack of All Trades and Jack, Jack. Rabbit. And I went, hmm. Hmm. Yeah, Rabbit, not Rabbit. Rabbit. That's Because I'm a Rabbit fan. Everyone knows that. It's a, you know, it's a silly pun, but... You're the only jackrabbit I know. There might be imitators now, but you've been at it a long time. So uh, let's give you the crown. By the way, that's about, uh, it was a few years later when I became Chris T because we were putting out the first Nihilistics EP. And I was like, there's no way I want my last name on this thing. Uh-huh. I, and so uh, it, it was Chris T. I was like, okay, Chris T. And that has been, that has stuck. That's what I used on, on the radio for many, many years. And what I still use, and that's who I was when you met me. Um, yeah, stuff anything you like, you know, it's free country. Yeah. Now, uh, because I've been going down the memory hole, and and by the way, there is a resurgence now. I think ever since there's a few things. I mean, please kill me. The book uh, by uh, Jillian McCain and um, oh. Legs McNeil might have kicked things off, but oh, yeah. now there's a bunch of books coming out about the part of the uh, picture that I was in. The the 1980 to 19 whatever you want to call it uh nyhc scene that came after the punk scene there was tony retman's book and the last time you and i met in person was at one of his book parties there's been a few others as well steve uh stephen blush put out american hardcore what do you think of all this sort of re-examination of that particular time why why is it happening now is it because of the aging of the folks who were around back then to a certain degree, people are always going to want to look back at something that happened kind of organically. Same thing that when I was a kid, I was reading about Kerouac and Burroughs and Jeffrey Corson, people like that, and Allen Ginsberg, who was my landlord, because those people were the same thing. They were not like gigantic um, literary stars, but they were kind of kicking against the normal behavior. And uh, by the time you get to punk rock in general, before you even hit hardcore, you know, the radio was just like not interested the record companies had very brief interest and then pulled out. So it was completely a do-it-yourself and uh, sustain-it-yourself scene. You know, it was only going to be as good as the communal effort of everybody involved, either being in a band or booking bands or taking pictures of bands or managing bands or, you know, enticing other people's interest. So I think that interests people because once the net came along, once the internet comes along in 1994, that kind of organic thing is really much more difficult to do. Everything's a lot easier now. You had to work a lot harder back then to get something going. It's funny and, to hear you talk about the communal thing because when I think of the New York scene, especially, it doesn't. It never struck me as terribly communal. There was a there was a fair amount of competition. There was a fair amount of my band is better than your band, and I don't know if you experienced that as well, but that's kind of how it felt to me. 
Again, a paradox. It was both. You know, every band should think they're the best band or else they ought to work harder. <laughs> they ought to practice more and write better songs. You know what I mean? Right. Right. If you're a great band and have no one to play with, it's a bit lonely. And uh, if you're playing with other bands you genuinely respect and admire, even if you like yours the best, then you got something and you, you want to play with them more and you want to get even better as your band even if they're doing something completely different. Well, then why did you name your band Even Worse if you want to get even better? I mean, I... Yeah. Even Worse, Nihilistics, uh, Heart Attack, False Prophets, Crowd, all these bands. We were all really different bands. Yeah. And yet we were, you know, grouped together and quite happily so under this rubric of punk rock even before the hardcore term came along. And we predated hardcore, all of our bands, and then we were suddenly there when it started getting popular. So our audiences got a lot larger very quickly. But then hardcore itself, like thrash hardcore, kind of subsumed everything. People like me just said, I've, I've had enough of this and left. Uh, it's interesting to hear you say that, because I recall being on various stages and not really digging when the mosh pit would form. I was one of those few people who thought... It was just uh, dudes being really angry and wanting to hurt other people. And especially when they would jump on the stage and want to stage dive, that never made me terribly happy. And I'm even quoted in some early fanzines saying, I don't approve of it. It's macho aggression. And I agreed with you, which is one of the reasons we're such friends. <laughs> I mean, I, I always say this. I try not to be elitist and put everybody else down who did things that I didn't care for. But I had five years of punk rock without slam dancing. I had five years where women were half the scene, you know, and were rapidly entering bands and, uh, you know, making really interesting music. And as I said, it was just seemed like more of a creative art scene to me. And it embraced a much wider array of music and art. You know, a lot of the people I was meeting was like Andy Warhol and Jim Jaramouche and uh, Basque, people like that. It was just sculptors filmmakers, uh, painters, musicians, everybody getting together to do this kind of art attack is what I thought punk rock was. And, and then hardcore just seemed very formulaic and uh, about conforming to a very rigid and restricted idea of what punk could be, and it got boring really fast to me. Even though I liked a lot of the original bands like yours and, and mine and uh, Circle Jerks and Minor Threat and Bad Brains and all that stuff, I thought they were all brilliant. But then it began to there was get... It was trying to sound like those bands, and it just got boring. Oh, there was nobody that could sound like the Nihilistics. Please. No. No, of course not. And nobody really... Everybody would try to be the Bad Brains, but they couldn't, because it's like trying to be James Brown or Jimi Hendrix or something. It's you know? not It's not going to happen. Yeah. It's not going to happen, even if you're influenced by them. And, of course, they a lot of bands took the worst influence from the Bad Brains, which was just to play super fast, as if that was the entire point of the Bad Brains. And, of course, it wasn't. No, they uh, had ungodly amounts of finesse. And um, yeah. it's interesting when I think back, uh, like the, I'm, when we recorded our first EP, it was at the uh, Studio 171A, which was the Bad Brain Studio. I remember getting a contact high as soon as I walked in there. There was so much pot smoking going on. There was at least one member of the Dead Boys there. Were you there as well? I'm trying to remember. I was there. You I was there. there when the Beastie Boys recorded their single there. I was there when the Bad Brains recorded their album. And the Bad Brains executive produced our album we recorded there. So I was there all the time. Why were you there all the time? It was a good hangout spot. Okay. Uh, Jerry Williams, who was one of the guys running the joint, was a good friend and a seriously fun fellow. And I liked seeing bands work. You know, sometimes I even watch bands rehearse there, like Reagan Youth or something like that. And it was just fun, you know? Having a good time. I, I think that's why it was so communal to me, because even if bands could be somewhat competitive, we were all banding together and having fun. We were all talking to each other and, you know, exchanging jokes and having a drink and having a wild time. I just wish I had more memories of what went on. I mean, uh, what do you do? What do you recall of that particular outing there? Anything at all? Because I find out more about myself talking to other people who were there than I possibly yeah. can remember. I, I remember the Nihilistics being the funniest. I remember uh, that I had a lot of fun talking to Stefan just cause, from False Prophets because he was totally off the wall and liked me really, really liked uh, Screaming Jay Hawkins. Okay, yeah, so that's like, true. They're talking about Screaming Jay Hawkins at a you know, hardcore gig supposedly in 1981, and that's what we do. 
And I'd get together with Keith Morris and we'd be talking about the move and the small faces. You know what I mean? What to me, hell? it was all part of this great rock and roll continuum. Uh -oh. We talk about movies or girls or, you mm -hmm. know, um, um, radio shows or anything. It was a great cultural moment for me to be taking part at from age 16 to 21 like that. Yeah, when I think back on it, I, I feel really. I, I feel pretty lucky to have witnessed that and been part of that. I feel like it was something that really changed the trajectory of my life. I mean, do you see it that way as well? I have to think I'm kind of like the living embodiment in the sense that I only really had a couple of straight jobs. Like when I graduated from college, I worked for an insurance company for four or five years, wore the monkey suit and paid back my college loans, you know? Mm-hmm. But um, I've always been able to follow the same passion I had when I was in high school, going to class and taking exams, and then going to shows at night. Like uh, my favorite story is that I went, I took my SATs at freaking eight in the morning when I was seventeen, and then I went to see Elvis Costello and the Ruby News at Palladium in Manhattan later that night, and I was like falling asleep even while Elvis was doing this great show because I'd been up so long and you know it's so intensive taking an exam like that. But that was my life. You know, I couldn't wait to get into Manhattan where all the action was. And here I am. I'm still going to shows. I'm still finding new records. I find records from the 40s or 50s and 60s I've never heard from or heard in my life. Even recordings by bands I've been fans of my whole life. You know, like some old Jerry Lee Lewis bootleg or something like that. If it's really great, I want to hear it. Well, it reminds me of what the late Billy Miller of the A-Bones used to say. If you've never heard it before, it's new. Yeah, it is. It, it's I, new. Uh, yeah. I think the most money I ever spent on any record was the Hank Williams box set because there was like endless discs on there of like radio sessions and things that no one had ever had unless they were this, you know, this of course being before YouTube came along. Yeah. Yeah. I everything like that. So I spent like 150 bucks and I was never regretful about that because like you said, it was new to me hearing radio session Hank Williams things. It's just great. And this is this is how I am as a person. I just love music, so I'm in the right place, I guess. If you love films, you should be making films. You know, if you like pottery, you should be, you know, making a nice mug for me. And I'll drink my coffee out of it tomorrow and be like, wow, that's a great mug. <laughs> I like doing talk radio, which is why I wanted to talk to you, because it's been forever since we had a long conversation we used to talk all the time back in the day because there was a lot of time at these shows you had a lot of time sitting around waiting yeah. and, and i'd show up when they opened the door too because there was someone like you to talk to i mean i could be home like playing a record but there's somebody fun to talk to who's going to make me laugh and make me think and i'll have a good time why shouldn't i be at the show i was at shows like six nights a week back then that's you know, remarkable I, like, I don't know uh a punk rock band on Tuesday and like a surf band on Wednesday and <laughs> Chuck Berry on Thursday. Well, know? the pandemic must be hell for you then. I mean, the pandemic must be hell because you the live music is out right now. I mean, are you looking forward to, this is a dumb question, obviously, but you've got to be looking forward to when shows start up again. Sure I am. But I was probably down to about 20 shows a year before the pandemic because I am a husband and I have two children, and I can't just be going out any old time I want to. And uh, a lot of times my place is at home, but yeah. plus I'm pretty picky, you know, after seeing shows for 45 years. I'm not just going to go out to hang out. But right. Yeah. I do see all my favorite bands, and I'm happy to do so. I uh, am talking with Jack Rabbit. Again, BigTakeOver.com is where you can go to subscribe to the magazine to find out about the uh, radio show as well, and Patreon.com slash Rabbit to support these efforts that are not uh, making Jack rich by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> but it's good when you're able to at least make a living at what you love. And that's something that we've always talked about. People have always said, you know, find your passion, make a living at it. So uh, I'm glad to hear all these years later that that's what's going on with you. Uh, however meager the li living is, it's mine. Yeah. And, you know, I have to work 60 hours a week five months a year, 60 to 80 hours. It's still something that I feel like not only benefits myself, but other people enjoy. Yeah, right. If anyone I, I, enjoys your radio show, then you get that intrinsic value of having done it. Especially of, if they say, Chris, I really like your radio show, like that intro that you had. Today, yes. That, that yeah. guy calling up saying, we hope you had the right Chris. Yeah, that was uh, 
that's kind of faux. That's 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 a friend of mine uh, uh, pretending to love the show. Yeah, yeah. That's. <laughs> I'm sorry, I I had to reveal that to you and 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 break the illusion. Sorry about that. Jerry. Oh, that's all right. I'm Perfect. sure there's plenty of people who like your show who never even call. Uh, I get letters all the time. I've been reading your magazine for 30 years, you know, and that or calls or emails. I'm like, that's great that you told me that. You know, well, I didn't know you were there all those years. I used to hear from people. I used to hear that a lot from people too. They they'd run into me somewhere and they go, "Oh, I listen to your show every week," and I'm like, "Do you ever call?" I'm like, "No." Well, they don't have to, you know, no, just the fact that they're enjoying true. it, it makes them the people that you're aiming at. That's true. They don't you have know, to. I, I always feel like when I die, I want people to miss me or to think, well, what did you ever do for anybody? You know what I mean? It's a, it's a good goal to try and give something of yourself that other people can enjoy because that's what I do. I consume a ton of stuff that other people produce and I try to pass it along and tell other people about it and they've made my life better, you know, whether it's reading Travels with Charlie by Steinbeck or something like that, or yeah. The Air Nightmare by Henry Miller. I mean, those guys were dead by the time I discovered how good they were. They still gave me something really tangible. Thank it's, you. It's nice. It's nice to have something like that left behind. And that's yeah. one of the reasons I've been going down the memory hole and trying to figure out like all of this audio I have and what to do with it and all of this writing that I've done and what to do with it. It's because, I mean, especially in a, in the digital age, this stuff is gone as soon as they turn off the electricity. And, I was saying about ephemeral, yeah. Yeah, and I, I mean, screw non-fungible tokens. I, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around what the hell that is. Um, but it seems like the, st the, the stuff that, you know, we're talking about, the stuff that uh, you and I live through together has some kind of staying power. People are still interested in that particular time. I have my own theory. I, I do think it's because it was that time just before MTV. And MTV, I mean, the only band to emerge out of that scene to make any kind of impact on a national level was the one band we all thought was a joke. And that would be the Beastie Boys. I don't know if you thought they were a joke, Jack, but back then... I thought they were like a novelty band. I, I thought literally they got up and did jokey songs and it was they were having a laugh. And sort of in a very stealth way, they took over the world at some point. Um, and it, it's odd that, you know, they were able to exploit this thing called MTV. But none of these other bands that I had played on stages with, we were all too early. And I wonder if that's one of the reasons why it's frozen in amber the way it is for a lot of people, or they want to really examine it because it didn't benefit. Those those bands did not benefit from that kind of exposure. Well, you've made a good point because it's one that I've made myself, which is always the definition of a good point, right? Yes. One you agree, one you agree with. I've often said that the thing about MTV is it changed the way people perceive music because until the early 80s, people listened to music. Um, and at best they might see a picture of the band in a magazine or on the record cover, and if they went to see the band, they could see them in action. But uh, after the early 80s, people stopped seeing, um, sorry, listening to music. They started seeing music. So everything became to be about a video instead of just closing your eyes and listening. So there was that for starters. The other thing is, you know, when you mention a band like the Beastie Boys in conjunction with MTV, the Beastie Boys did not become MTV stars playing the punk rock that they started with that you're referring to that had them fitting with our scene, you know. They became a rap group. Yes. Uh, MTV was interested in playing certain types of rap music, especially made by white people, <laughs> and certain types of, like, you know, kind of metallic classic rock and hard rock and a little bit of new wave. But they were not going to be any more adventurous, really, in the end than the radio industry as a whole as it was in the early 80s, which was not adventurous at all. Right. So if, like, Minor Threat made a video, MTV is not going to show that play it, no. Right, yeah. They played Crowd a few times when they first started because they had a dearth of videos. Yes. So they had a tiny adventurous streak, but they were it's not like Kraut was on, you know, maximum rotation or anything. It's just because Kraut was smart enough to hand them a really, really polished video they could play, and it was a good video, and it was an amusing video. And they did that got them a little bit of cred to play something like that. But their heart was really in playing like April Wine videos. Let's face it. <laughs> April Wine. 
that oh, idiot it's... sitting in the truck, you know, pretending to sing into a CB radio. I mean, I'm looking at this going like, this sucks. <laughs> I <laughs> this is music television. don't know is if it, I've ever seen this. Because now I got to see it. I got to track I that down. I see Angel, you know, when I would hear Angel on classic rock radio in the 70s. Now I have to see them too. It's bad enough when I got to hear this crap. Now I got to watch it. Exactly. I got to watch them acting. Yeah. You know, but a video, a video to me was just a commercial. Yeah. It was a commercial for a record where they pretended to act out something. You know, to me that was, I, I, you know, not to say that I hated all videos. I used to watch the Rock America ones even when they play them at legs, right? Yeah. Like 999 videos and Susie and the Banshees videos. Oh, those were good though. Yeah. Fans made much more creative videos, and I was already a fan of the song before I ever saw the videos. So, I mean, probably the first time I heard uh, "Making Plans for Nigel," for instance, was when the video was playing. That's probably right. the first Rock time. American video. Exactly. It, it could be a way to expose people to good music, but you know, whenever the dictates of commercialism rears its ugly head, you get April Wine instead. It's been a long time since I heard mention of and April stuff Wine. like that instead of I don't know uh, the weirdos and. And uh, Black Market Baby, right? I mean, they weren't going to go for the edgiest stuff. They were going to go for the stuff that would give them the most commercials and the most, you know, add-ons to cable uh, bills. Well, so, I I, I got to say, uh, as usual, Jack is spot on. This is, a, this is the thing I appreciated about you. I mean, you complimented me earlier. And one of the things I always appreciated about you is you, you, you seem to have a level head on your shoulders. That was number one. <laughs> Number two, you always seem to like be sort of in an upbeat mood, happy, right? Happy Jack Rabbit, and uh, fun right now. What what do I got to complain about? And you told it like it was. You and and you didn't uh, you didn't pull your shots, you know. And and that that has to be respected. I I think for the longest time, you have staked out a position, and and it may not be what everyone else is thinking or the the one that is going to get you accolades but it's the one that you know you see it that way and you express it that way so thank you for that for having the courage of your convictions it's it's not that common a thing it really isn't so and well, and, and the thing about a conviction is it it tends to be authentic especially if you put a great deal of thought as opposed to just a snap judgment into it and if you want to know again why people are so interested in the 1975 to 1982 punk rock scene is because it was authentic. And the way to be authentic is to be telling the truth and you know actually genuinely thinking about things before you spout off your ugly mug, you know? Yeah. So well, you... All, all I've done is follow the dictates of punk rock, which is, you know, get out your BS detector like in that Clash song. Think about things first. Sometimes conventional wisdom is right. A lot of times it isn't. You know, take a chance against the crowd, even your own crowd, if if you really think that people are doing something wrong. And well, the opposite, you know, by all means, champion something that other people are neglecting or discounting if you think it's really brilliant. I did something in it. I, I related that part of the story. You did an interview recently uh, and, and you talked about how the nihilistics were sort of your bodyguards for a while because of. For a good couple of months, yeah. Yeah, that, uh, because it's and, and I again, this is stuff that I don't necessarily remember, so it's interesting to see this. The uh, fact that I still have a full set of teeth means that I remember it. What? what how did that come about? I mean, b this leads into what we were just talking about because you were calling out this gay bashing that was going on these skinheads, and there's a joke that we used to tell back in the day. Are you a good skinhead? It's not, or a bad skinhead. It's not so much a joke as a steal from the wizard of Oz because skinhead <laughs> could also be an aesthetic is you, you could have the shaved head. You could have the boots and braces. It didn't mean you were a Nazi. There were good yeah. skinheads and bad skin. It's very, it's tough to explain this to people who weren't there or didn't experience it. They were black skinheads. There were skinheads from every stripe um, but these skinheads apparently had a problem with gay people and you called them out on it. Yeah. Uh, in the tail end of my interest in hardcore, uh, while I was actually having more fun going to gigs that the rank and file were doing opening for the blasters or something like that. Uh, I still played punk rock or hardcore records on my radio show I was doing back then. And I would cover them in my magazine, but for the most part I was disgusted with the hardcore scene by 1983. And then, Maximum Rock and Roll asked me to write a column when they launched, and I said, what do you want me for? I hate this stuff you're covering. 
you know, if you want me to talk about the Pagans and the Dead Boys and uh, even some of the newer bands like Social Unrest or Bad Religion, I'm happy to. But the scene as a whole, I think, has completely lost the plot. It's going down the tubes. And they said, well, why don't you write that? Hmm. I said, really? You want, that's what you want? Because I can supply it. Was that and Tim Yohannan who said that? Tim Yohannan and Jeff Bale. Yeah. Good guys, actually. And I said, well, okay, you know, uh, I'm in the business of telling the truth, and you're, I guess, the best place to be telling that truth. It's like being a liberal writing for a conservative publication or a conservative writing for a liberal publication. You give them some other thing to think about, you know, instead of just preaching to the converted. So I said, okay, it's not a paid position, but I'll do it. And I told them, I'm just going to write on things that I that I see, and if I see something good, I'll say it, but what I'm seeing is not really to my liking, and probably you're going to get a lot of that. And one of the columns was about a, a skinhead kid who I, I knew in passing. He seemed like a pretty cool kid, actually. Like you said, there were plenty of you know, friendly and smart skinhead kids. But this one apparently got murdered. I didn't know much about it. I, I think he got pushed on path train tracks by some metal dudes or something. It was a long time ago, and I don't remember it precisely. So I hope I'm not getting that completely wrong. But that was an obvious tragedy, and there was a lot of mourning for him in this you know, hardcore community in New York. At the same time where some of the you know, uh, punks and hardcores were getting their faces in gay magazines saying, look out for this guy. He's been bashing people, you know, who were dressed as homosexuals and shouting anti-gay slurs and stuff like that. And so my point was, is I didn't understand the disconnect. You know, it's pure and simple prejudice either way. And the people who are bashing skinheads should think about their or the or bashing gay people should think about their poor fallen comrade who was, you know, killed for no reason other than, you know, his hair and his clothes or whatever, his, uh, his attitude in life. And they didn't like so that, did they? Unfortunately, instead of taking my point, they just decided they ought to beat me up now. Makes sense. Yeah. Uh, word, word got to me that I was going to have my butt absolutely kicked. Mm-hmm. And the day, day after that, I looked out my front uh, window on the fourth floor and saw a bunch of them waiting for me at my front door. And I said, wow, this is screwed up. And, that's, and so I, I barely went out for three weeks. I would literally look first. And then I'd go down three flights of stairs and open up the door and look right and look left before I went anywhere. And then they'd come back the next day. So uh, word got to the nihilistics, including yourself, that that this was happening. And I got a call. I think it was from you, actually. And it was just like, I don't respect this. This is... <laughs> This is, you know, chicken shit, I think, was the word that was used. I would if you probably want to go out, you know, like I said, I can't even go out. Said, if you want to come out, we'll come to your house. We'll escort you. And I was like, really? <laughs> Great, because I kind of like to do some grocery shopping. But most, most of all, I want to go to a gig. You know, there's a show coming up with, like, The Descendants I really want to see. Oh, you should have seen me back in the day. I was pretty fearsome. You should have seen me. Yeah. One scowl from Mike and Chris and, and Ron, and nobody was going to touch me. Yeah. They weren't so about, about to mess four gigs surrounded. I mean, literally surrounded by the three of you at every interval. Well, Just, the people picture... were giving me the worst glares, but they wouldn't mess with me because they wanted to be like an eight to one fight where they could just beat living daylights out of me. You no know, real cowardly kind of thing. But I probably couldn't even have beaten one of them anyway. I wasn't particularly, you know, well built or anything. I was skinny, 140 pounds. So probably one of them could have kicked my ass anyway, let alone eight of them. Uh, it's a picture I've been using t- for this episode. You could see it on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Chris Sackis and Chris R. Sackis, I should say. And on the Aerial View page as well, look for Aerial View on Facebook. But there's a picture of uh, you with your eyes closed and Ron and Mike. And, and I'm pretty sure it was from Joe Papp's uh, theater. That There was a show there uh, back in like 81 or 82. Uh, you might have a better memory of when it was taken, but it kind of looks like that's what, what was going on is you were being escorted. So uh, I don't think that was one of those shows. Cause I looked a lot less, <laughs> you know, perturbed. Okay, good, good. I look, I look, I know I have my eyes closed, but I look like I'm having my normal fun time, which I was, well, I was just jazzed to be out at these shows. I knew it was something special. I guess I was one of those rare people who knew I was doing something that was, you know, genuinely exciting and unusual. That's good, because for me, it went by in a blur. I mean, I'm not sure. I, I, I think I should have paid more attention. I should have kept more ephemera. I should have taken more pictures. There's no video footage of the band. There was 
yeah. from my father's so place. Doing and... it to document a lot of it. What was that? The only video of even worse is from Peppermint Lounge, just because they videoed everybody, and even that was lost for like thirty-five years. But you can see it on YouTube now. Well, who's got the nihilistics video from back in the day? That's what I want. I don't know, but recently DOAs has surfaced and been added to YouTube and Circle Jerks opening for the cramps. And I was at both of those gigs, so it was fun to watch them in the last couple of weeks. Well, you know, the, I remember these gigs. Yeah, the nihilistics played the Peppermint Lounge more more than once, I'm pretty sure. So there's someone. So, so keep a watch on YouTube. They might just show up sometime oh, or dear try and contact the guy who's been posting those and ask him, you know, can can you ask the fellow who's got all these tapes in this basement that were discovered and saved? Can you look for my band too? I'll ask him right now. If you're that fella, get in touch. I want to hear from yeah. you. Hey, well, I mean, there you go. We were just having such a great time. We didn't stop to worry constantly. Like, is somebody taping the show? Is someone filming it? Um, is someone taking pictures? Well, so there was just little documentation of our scene, other than flyers, really. Well, and there was, there was one show at my father's place where we set up a video camera and we shot the entire set. And stupid me, I never got a copy of the video. And the, the video was in Mike's basement in Lindenhurst when it flooded. And he uh, claimed that, that it got destroyed when his basement got flooded. I don't know if that's the case. There, there, it may be around somewhere. Mike has been dead for 10 years, so it's kind of hard to figure that one out. Um, right. But, yeah, somebody out there, so, somewhere, there's footage. There's got to be some kind of footage. I would love to see, have seen us in our prime back in the day. Um, Again, it was it was absolutely authentic because there was no reason to be in nihilistics unless you really liked it, unless you really meant what you were saying and doing and, and enjoying being part of, like, this crazy patchwork scene of people who had like-minded ideas without really sounding like each other. And that would be true even if you were in L.A. in 78 or Vancouver in 79 or London in 76 or, you know, Sydney and, and Melbourne when the Saints and Radio Birdman were doing their thing. You know, just like it's a clarion call. Right. Something does something good and or you find someone else who's doing something good while you've already started too. And pretty soon you've got a gig and then you've got a scene and then you've got venues and people just show up every time you play or they play. And it's it, it's a very workable thing, and it produces some actual art. And it produces some actual culture, and here we are 40 years later, people are genuinely interested in that because it just happened on its own. Well, now i got to play you calling Tim Summer because we're almost out of road. You want to you want to listen to this with me? Is that okay? Yeah, it was a great memory doing that too because people yeah. really believed it. Here we uh This would be Noise the Show, and Tim Summer is your uh, host, and Jack is calling it. We got something really special for you now, right, folks? Uh, we got an interview with Jack Rabbit. He's in Japan with even worse. Jack, can you hear me? Hello? Jack! Tim? Yeah, how you doing? Oh, how are you? Uh, how, what time is it over there? I don't know. I just got up. Got yeah. out of bed. Now, you're, you're doing a tour of Japan, right? Yeah, we've been playing a couple of dates lately. Listen to Tim selling this. Uh, it's going to be a nine-day tour, actually. Yeah, everyone talks about going to Japan and doing Budokan. Have you done Budokan yet? Uh, no, we're going to do that next week and record a live album. You're doing a live album? Yeah, we'll, we'll send you a copy you can play on your next show. You think it'll be here by next week? Um, I think we'll be back by then, yeah. We, got, we only have like three or four more dates to do. Yeah, so how else is the tour going? Well, so far, the support's been by the Vapors. They were going to put them ahead of us, you know, they were going to be the headline band, but they didn't think their song, Turning Japanese, would go over too big or anything, so they put us in the headline slot. Yeah? How are the crowds? Well, the crowds are pretty wild. It's mostly just girls so far, and they all dye their hair different colors. You know, it's really wild. You just look out and you can't even understand what they're saying. Yeah? Hey, is this on the air? Yeah, this is going out on Noise the Show, Jack. You're kidding. It's only seven, it's only five days over here in New York. I thought you were just calling me to say hello. No, 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 this is going out over there. How's the food <laughs> over there in Japan, Jack? The food? Yeah. Well, I've only thrown up twice, but um, it's, I guess it's okay. I just was sort of looking for some Chinese food, and I can't find any. That's really Chinese funny. I can't food. believe that over there in Asia. You can't get any uh, Chinese food. No, no. You can, you can get McDonald's before you can get Chinese food over here. So you would say that even worse than getting to be a pretty big item over in Japan? 
Well, I don't know. You know, I guess they treat anybody who comes over from America at all, especially if they're a hardcore group, like they're some kind of god dropped out of the sky or something. Do they know many of the American hardcore bands over there, Jack? Uh, actually, more than they do in England and some of the other places. More than they do in LA, where we're playing next week. It's really strange. Yeah, so what are you gonna, what is even worse gonna be back in New York, Jack? Well, if all goes according to airline reservations, we should be in next Tuesday. That sounds fantastic. We gotta go now, Jack. We don't wanna run up the uh, station's <laughs> phone bill too high, okay? Well, it's, it was good to hear someone speak English and I could understand it. Thanks for calling. That sounds good, Jack. We'll play your uh, live at Budokan album next week. That's Jack Rabbit from Even Worse, live from Japan. Say goodbye, Jack. Goodbye. And introduce the next song. There's Jack Rabbit all the way from Japan. This next song, CLA by the Crux, Jack. Why don't you do introduce it all the way from Japan? This is GLA by who? The Crux. The Crux? The Crux. Okay, this is GLA by the Crux. Take it, Tim. <laughs> when's, the la when's the last time you're... Why did you guys do that? Why were you duping everybody? What's uh, up with a, that? Like I said, all, constantly in this last hour, we were having a gas, man. And Tim and I got talking about the War of the Worlds, which was a hoax perpetrated by Orson Welles on the radio. And everyone believed that the Martians had invaded you know, New Jersey. <laughs> yeah. So we, got, we decided to do the same thing. And that, the entire time we did that, I was standing down the hall looking at him. You know, as opposed to being in Japan and pretending I didn't realize he was calling and putting me on the air. So now the just, truth can be told, finally. Everybody believed it. I went to the Peppermint Lounge a week later, and everybody was like, oh, I heard you interviewed. What was Japan like? <laughs> and I said, I wouldn't know. <laughs> I've been here the whole time. We were lying, lying to you the whole time. <laughs> you know, we didn't rehearse it. We didn't have a script. It was completely, totally ad-libbed from the beginning, which is the whole point of punk rock, I think. There you go. And so I, I threw in all these references, like jokes, like, you know, can't get any Chinese food here, <laughs> just off the top of the my The vapors, head. there was a reference to the vapors, yes. I, I wish the audio was a little and better, but... That whole bit about Budokan, because Cheap Trick had just put out the live album only like two years before that, and it, it was such a big deal. Yeah. So we were pretending like we were Cheap Trick, you know, the hardcore band, going, going to Tokyo. Wow. So well, we, that's the sort of fun we were having back then, and it was a constant basis. I'm going to send you that audio so you can use it on the the big takeover show. How's yeah, that? A kudos, like speaking of kudos to the engineer on that show that Tim was working on. I think I can't remember who it was, but uh, we we experimented for five or ten minutes getting as much static as we could on my call, so it would sound like it was coming from overseas because. Uh, younger people wouldn't know this, but 40 years ago when you'd make overseas calls, there'd be just tons of static on the line. You could barely you know, hear and understand what someone says. So I think that really contributed to the authenticity, speaking of authenticity. In this How case, can you talk to your folks. kids about the transatlantic cable, Jack? When are you going to sit them down and tell them about the transatlantic cable? In well, the, once they get off my lawn. Once they get off your lawn. That's, <laughs> that sounds them. like a plan. Uh, Jack Rabbit has been my guest for this last very fast-paced hour. And uh, we've talked about a lot of stuff. And I know it's been all over the place, but that's the way the human brain works. I'm okay with that. Is there anything in particular you want to leave people with before we uh, run out of road, Jack? Well, uh, after doing something 40 years, you know, sometimes you wonder, like, what it was all for. But as I was saying, I think serving the public is a nice thing. And there's a lot of ways that you can do it, even if you just help some old lady across the street, right? You know, like the proverbial Boy Scout thing, where you see someone, they drop something, and you help them pick it up. There's, there is a communal aspect of life, which I think has been run roughshod over the last 40 years since Reagan took office. So in a way, we were well-timed with the punk rock ethic which was to really be, you know, your true self and, and do things that other people could benefit from and things you could do yourself. And uh, to quote the, uh, a line from A Hard Day's Night, we, we had an early clue to a new direction. We, we knew Reagan was bad for America, and now all these books are coming out about just how it was really the beginning of the end. Yeah, for, and I'm not even going to take credit for my being there. Yeah. You know, it's completely the work of my best friend, Dave Stein, his friend Jeff Hutchinson and his girlfriend then, uh, Janet Whitehouse, they got into David Bowie in 1977. I thought they were completely off the rockers. We got and about 20 seconds, Jeff. You have to listen to this record. You have to listen to this record. And they lent me one of the records. I spent like a week trying to, you know, 
pretend I didn't like it every time I played it. And I just, the switch flipped and I was hooked thereafter. So, you know, other people do things for you and that's what makes the person you are and you go from there. Jack, I got to say goodbye. Let's do it again sometime, though. It's been great talking hey, to you. Anytime you want me, I'm All here. Right. It's, like I said, it's a gas. All right, I'm man. Yes. Take care. TheHoundNYC.com. I'm returning you to The Hound as we speak. Mm-hmm.